Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with them to him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, the man who leads our Mandarin ministries here at St. Helens kindly takes me with him once in a while when we're able to travel into the countries he's involved in. And I think he does it just because I'm old and our Asian friends quite rightly respect their elders. The first time I set foot in Asia with him, he asked me to speak on the Christian gospel, the good news of Jesus. And I spoke from Romans chapter 1 and announced that the Christian gospel is about regime change. And you could almost see the blood drain from the face of my dear Mandarin friend who was translating at the time. But the Christian gospel is about regime change. As Jesus comes into this world, he demands a change of regime. He has come as king. And the question is, what kind of regime is it that he brings? If I'm going to hitch my wagon, if I could put it like that, to the Lord Jesus, what are the standards of his regime? So today's subject is very much on message with the kind of issues being discussed all around us today. What are the values of Qatar? What does China stand for? What of the West? And what of the regime that I serve in the office where I work? Do they have integrity? Or are they merely virtue signaling? Is it rank hypocrisy? So where is the one to whose virtues I can willingly surrender myself? That's the question we're going to be considering over the next few weeks. It's not at all hard to see how some might have thought that Jesus had come to overthrow the standards and set ways of the Jewish people. That's precisely where Jesus begins in verse 17 of our reading today. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. I want us to see first that Jesus doesn't lower the bar of the law, he meets it. Jesus does not lower the bar, he meets it. Jesus has just announced that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, 
with the arrival of the king, the imminence of his kingdom, does this mean a whole new code of conduct and revised modus operandi? After all, he's pronounced his beatitudes, blessings from the mountain, just as Moses pronounced blessings from the mountain. So does this mean Jesus has brought in a new order with a new system? He's just as declared that his people are the true covenant people. You're the salt of the earth. They're the true Jerusalem. You're the city set on a hill, a light. Does this mean that a new covenant comes with new covenantal arrangement? Vast crowds are coming to Jesus out in Galilee, away from the capital Jerusalem. He's healing the sick, helping the poor, feeding the hungry. Is this some kind of great revolution that takes you right away from the Jewish system? In short, the answer is no and yes. So Jesus' kingdom will not bring so much of a revolution as to abolish the entire Old Testament system of the law and the prophets in which God reveals himself. He will, however, fulfill them. They will be accomplished in and through him. And he will overthrow the tick box loophole religion that surrounds us in the world. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That then, of course, raises any number of questions, and verses 18 to 20 begin to unpack some of them. So in verse 18, Jesus insists that the finest detail of God's Old Testament law must persist from the time of his coming right through to the close of the age. Just look at verse 18. For I say to you, truly, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, heaven and earth there are this present order of this universe as we experience it now, the physical realities of this age. They will not pass away until the whole of the law is accomplished. An iota and a jot, or a tittle in some translations, are the smallest letter and the finest markings in Hebrew writing. The iota was the smallest letter. The tittle, or the jot, was a tiny stroke that distinguishes one letter from another. Not a stroke of a pen will disappear from the law in this age until it's all accomplished. And notice that It will all stand until all is accomplished. And so Jesus is expecting a fulfillment, a completion, and there will be no removal of the standard or relaxing of the law of God or downgrading of the status of the law and the prophets until it's all accomplished. The word is until it all comes into being. So it stands, and it stands entire, and it stands entire until it's fulfilled. And it stands entire until it's fulfilled, and it finds its conclusion in that to which it points. To that end, I sometimes think the idea of an architect's plan might be helpful, the drawings. They're there, and they're vital until such time as the engineers have completed their work. Once completed, the architect's drawings, well, they remain of tremendous value in order to enable you to understand the finer workings of the building, but they're actually accomplished go into 22 Bishopsgate, as I did last week. And there you see the real thing, everything to which all the plans pointed. 
Now, if that's the case, then verses 19 and 20 apply what Jesus teaches. And verses 19 and 20 apply them, well, to the loophole religion of the Pharisees that looked so exacting, but actually was a kind of loophole religion, and indeed to the loophole religion of every age. Verse 19, Jesus insists that those who downplay or degrade or soft pedal or slack, slacken God's perfect law in any part will meet the strongest condemnation from God. And those who insist on God's moral standards will be commended. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He must have in mind the scribes and the Pharisees because of verse 20. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus speaking. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, well, the scribes were experts in the law. Like the teachers of the law, they knew it. They wrote it. If the scribes were the interpreters, the Pharisees were the enforcers. The scribes and the Pharisees were deadly serious about the law of God, intent on upholding it. So intent on upholding it that they created numerous additional conditions and subclauses to enable people to keep it. Each subclause, by qualifying the law in one way or another, made it possible to render the law's demands, in a sense, less exacting. Because you can say, well, I've ticked that one, and I've done that one, and I've done that one, and I've done that one. Now I'm all clear. That's why I call it loophole religion. Far from keeping the law, they end up, by adding to it, downgrading it. It's rather sad, really. There was no one more fastidious in keeping the law, but by their additions, they achieved subtraction. Uh, there was a, an individual in our Bible study yesterday when we were looking at this passage, and he said, yeah, the more you add, the more loopholes are possible. Adding to a thing, he said, can prevent you from looking closely at the principle of the thing. And that's why we have 10,000 lawyers in town and several tables of them here. The Pharisees described this as fencing the law around. Let's make sure we keep it. But you see, by fencing it around, you didn't look at the key principle. You didn't drive it deep. And so you could walk away saying, well, I've kept that. I've done all together really rather well. And Jesus has been speaking against the Pharisees all through the sermon so far. You are the salt of the earth, he says to his disciples. But if anything loses its saltiness, i.e. the Pharisees, it's worthless. Now, this kind of loophole religion that we see everywhere, well, it may achieve a kind of virtue-signaling righteousness, and it may result in a pecking order of those who've kept it and those who haven't, but it doesn't actually drive through on the key principle of the law. I remember vividly being in Jerusalem, staying in a hotel there. The hotel had several floors. The hotel had two lifts. One was a Sabbath lift. The Sabbath lift had an automatic setting that meant it stopped at every single floor on the Sabbath. 
So that by pressing the button, of course, on the Sabbath, if you were a a kosher Jew, you would have caused somebody to work to provide electricity, but you could now get into the lift and you didn't have to press anything and it would stop on every single floor. Thereby, I've kept the law. Now, the hypocrisy of it is extraordinary. We might laugh, but we have precisely the same kind of double standards as we've seen in our reactions to Qatar, in our own companies, greenwashing, and so forth. Oh, yeah, I took the knee. Everything's okay. Oh, yeah, I wore the armband. Everything's okay. Oh, yeah, I've offset my carbon. I can crack on. Jesus says no loopholes, no subclauses, no lowering of the bar. The law stands. And if we're to have a place in the kingdom of heaven, we cannot lower the bar. Imagine if you could lower, imagine if he came saying, actually, no, the standard's much, much lower. Would you want to be part of that regime? I don't think you would. Now, this leaves the big question about the law. In what sense has Jesus come to fulfill the law and the prophets? And if I may, I'm going to spend just a couple of moments on this. The classic way of answering this is to suggest a threefold division of the law. The law of Moses contains civil law to do with ordering the society of Israel. The law of Moses in the Old Testament contains ceremonial law to do with the religious spiritual life of Israel and their cleansing. And the law of Israel contains moral law to do with obedience to the purity of God's moral law. The classic way of answering in what sense has he fulfilled the law is to say that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament civil laws and ceremonial laws, but that the moral law still stands intact and entire, and we should simply read the moral law straight across from the Old to the New Covenant Testament. Now, there is a slight problem with that because Jesus never makes that distinction. And Jesus doesn't actually treat the Ten Commandments like that, as we're going to see in just a moment. And Jesus doesn't ever argue for a different manner of fulfillment of the three different aspects of the law, distinguish one from another. In fact, the threefold division of the law is not a New Testament construct. I once heard the New Testament scholar Don Carson describing that way of understanding Jesus' fulfillment as, quote, a category error. No, Jesus seems to be suggesting he's going to fulfill the law and the prophets and fulfill the law and prophets in exactly the same way. I wonder if it's helpful to think of it like this. Just as Jesus fulfills the law about society by forming a new society around himself, and just as Jesus fulfills the law about sacrifice by making the perfect sacrifice for our sin. So Jesus fulfills the laws about our conduct by showing us what they really mean, even as he perfectly keeps them himself on our behalf and pays the punishment, the legal punishment, that God's moral law demands at the cross. He doesn't lower the bar. He meets it. He actually shows us, reinterprets the moral law of God, as we're going to see in a minute, in a way that I think you and I never could in a month of Sundays, keeps it himself, and then meets the legal demands that breach of the law be punished at the cross. Now, I've jotted down a quotation from Don Carson, which I think demands a lot of thought, and you might like to think about it as you go. 
it goes like this. The law pointed forward to Jesus and his teaching, so it is properly obeyed by conforming to Jesus' word. As it points to him, so he, in fulfilling it, establishes what continuity it has, the true direction to which it points, and the way it is to be obeyed. Now, I know that was a little bit of a sidestep, uh, not a sidestep, sorry, it was a little bit of a side alley. It wasn't a sidestep, I was trying to take it straight on. It was a little bit of a side alley, and, but it does matter. It really matters, because Jesus comes and he demands our obedience, our absolute loyalty. And we're only going to want to give our absolute loyalty to Jesus, willingly and gladly, if we can say, yes, this has got real integrity. If Jesus comes and he says, oh, well, I know there was a bar, but to be honest, let's just lower it down here somewhere, you're going to say, well, I don't want to be part of that. Just as you might say, I don't want to be part of a regime in Qatar, or I don't want to be part of a regime that is equally broken of the Western world. You want to say, I want to be part of a regime that really, really holds and has integrity. Now, let's begin to look at it in practice. What does it look like in practice? We're going to be there for the next few weeks. From verse 21 right through verse 47, Jesus goes back over God's law in order to spell out how he is reinterpreting it for us, what it really means. It's a thing that only God could do, actually. The, the, the kind of the brassiness of it is <laughs> if, he's, if Jesus isn't God, he's unbelievable. He begins with the sixth commandment, he continues with the seventh, he takes in the ninth and many other aspects of God's moral law. And as we look at the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, we will see that Jesus does not dilute God's law, he concentrates it. Now the verses are bracketed by verse 20 and verse 48. Look at verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. Now verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So says Jesus, don't think I've come to deliver anything like the religious system of the Pharisees and the scribes. This is not loophole religion. Don't think I'm going to dilute the holiness and the purity of the perfect God. Don't think I'm going to downgrade God's demands for entry into his heaven. You must be perfect as the Father is perfect. You must have a righteousness of a totally different order to the tick box morality of the scribes and Pharisees. Let's take a look at the commandment to murder. You have heard that it was said, verse 21, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you. Now, the commandment to murder may be something that each of us might feel that we have kept. Perhaps you're saying to yourself, well, what a relief. He started with quite an easy one. Um, and I really began, he, glad he began there. I was on a call yesterday with a group of bankers, and I said, and I didn't want to presume, has anybody, I said, please, you don't have to answer this, you know, who here has committed murder? Not a hand went up. Well, maybe several of them had, I don't know, but they didn't put their hands up. 
Jesus directs us to the true purpose of God's moral law, its essential core, what it really is about. Where does murder actually begin? What is murder? Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. We may not have murdered in cold blood. What about the smoldering resentment that has glowed glowed furiously under the surface? We may not have murdered in cold blood, but what about that indignation, the jealousy, the envy, the bitterness, the rage, that which simmers under the surface and bursts out in the heavy traffic? or at the checkout, or in a dispute with a neighbor over a fence. Isn't that where murder begins, with anger? Can we really claim to have kept the sixth? Verse 22, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Again, we may, I take it that's the counsel of God. We may not have murdered, but what about that time where we couldn't help ourselves and the ins- insult just blew out? The text was sent out, the email was hammered out, the tweet was launched, the message posted. What about that finger raised at the driver, or chant repeated at the opposing fan, or curse uttered under the breath, or sullen, passive-aggressive silence? Isn't that where murder begins? Can we really claim to have kept the sixth? We may not have murdered, but what about... You fool. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The word is more, from which we get moron. The concept is of a worthless being, an imbecile, somebody to be derided. You plonker. You prat. We may not have murdered, but what about that abuse? Isn't that where murder begins? Can we really claim to have kept the sixth? So you can see what Jesus is doing, how he treats the moral law, and how it is radically different to tick box, lowest common denominator, morality, that we see all around us. He isn't saying, here's the law, let's see how we can show we've kept it in some great virtue signal how good I am. He is saying, this is what the law truly means. Here is the principle, let's drive deeper. He hasn't come to dilute the law. He's come to concentrate it. And here's something for you to think about, us to think about. I don't think any of us, if all we had was the law of God in the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Old Testament, could have come up with what Jesus teaches here. I just don't think we would have come up with it. I don't think we could. He shows us what the law actually means. But though we couldn't have come up with it ourselves, when we look at what he says, we say, that's brilliant. Of course that's what the law is about. And God is perfect, and he demands perfection. Unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisee, we will never enter. Because he can't lower his moral standard and let me in without saying, well, then I'll let X in, Y in, Z in, and before you know it, there's no moral standard at all. 
perfection, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, if that's not searching enough, verse 23 through 26 is even more exacting because Jesus pictures a disciple on his way to Tuesday lunchtime and as she makes her way here, something reminds her or him of a dispute in which they are involved. Clearly, from verse 25, the dispute is something in which they are at fault. It's not a case where another person has no case against you. The accuser has a point. You're coming to Tuesday lunchtime, or the Pharisee to make his sacrifice. And Jesus says, rather than make a great show of your virtue with your sacrifice, you need to go and sort that out. Anger is such a malevolent evil in society that we need to go to that person who has a just cause against us and sort it out so that they do not experience vengeful intent towards us, because that would be promoting murder also. Do you see how strong it is? As we close, I wonder if you can see what Jesus is doing here. The law's job is to expound God's perfection and expose our sin. The law's job is to drive us to God for mercy. And the aim of the law is not for us to come away from here saying, well, look how well I've done. I didn't press a button in the lift. It's not that sort of lowering of the bar. It's to show us what God is really like. Perfect. To show us what we're really like. Unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, we will never enter. And so we end up saying, well, who can ever get in? Isn't that what you're saying? I mean, I said at the end of the call yesterday, who here has committed murder? Every hand went up. How can we ever get in? And that takes us back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is different from the Pharisees, that actually comes clean. Yep, I'm a moral failure, God. You've shown me the law. Now, please, would you have mercy on me and give me a righteousness that's not my own? And if we will come to Jesus, well, we'll receive it. Truly blessed. But do you see what we'll be able to do? We'll be able to say God's moral law stands absolute. This is his total perfection. We're not lowering the bar. God's absolute mercy is glorious. He will let us in. And then once in, we'll have a new heart. And we will want to live for this Jesus. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It changes everything. It's radical. It's revolutionary. And it kicks into touch the absurd virtue signaling and nonsense that you see going on as West meets East. How virtuous we are. What absolute rubbish. Not at all. Let's pray together. Blessed are those who mourn. Father, we acknowledge to you our abject failure to keep even this most basic of your commands, you shall not murder. We confess to you that our hearts 
and minds are full of evil intent towards other people. We thank you, Lord, that we can find comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has met your standard perfectly and paid the price for our failure. And we ask, Lord, that as we receive this righteousness in your grace and mercy, you would enable us to begin to live it for your namesake. Amen.